and welcome to a new episode of the Zonta on the Move podcast, brought to you by the Zonta Club of the Joliet area. I'm Lisa Pappas, your host for today, along with our co-hosts, Pat Perrier and Bonnie Winfrey. Hello, ladies. Hello. 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 Together, we are the PR committee for the Joliet Club. Our goal for today's podcast is to share the passion of the Zonta organization has for women and girls on a global level. Each of Zonta's individual clubs focuses on local service, advocacy, and solutions that make the world better for women and girls. And additionally, each club is responsible for supporting Zonta International's mission and vision to improve the lives of women and girls throughout the entire world. We're going to be talking to a guest who has spent her career dealing with issues that impact women on a global scale and who happens to be from our very own club, the wonderful Pam Hunty. Pam, a Joliet Club member since 2008, is a retired anthropologist and international consultant who spent many years working with agencies in Afghanistan. All right, so welcome, Pam, and thank you so much for being here, and we're excited to have you with us in the studio today. So let's start with your education. You got a degree in cultural anthropology. Tell us what that means. Okay, well, um, I have my PhD in, in sociocultural anthropology. Um, maybe I should go back a little bit and, and talk about uh, my BA at the University sure. of Iowa. I always have felt that education is a key in the whole development process. And so I majored in education. My mom was very happy because she taught at Hufford for I don't know how many years, and uh, she said she wasn't going to uh, pay for my education until I got a degree in education. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that was part of it, but I, it was the Vietnam War. Okay. It was in the late 70s. I wanted something more, and all of a sudden, anthropology was a way I could combine my interest in other cultures and other parts of the world with education. And I still feel education is the key sure. to, to solving problems of inequality. And I think we can get to that later because that's, that's what really brought me into anthropology. Uh-huh. Applied anthropology. Okay. Not, not only academic, but also applied. So what does that mean? So when you talk about applied anthropology, you're talking about working using the tenets of anthropology, but in, say, for example, projects like UNICEF, okay. something to, in quotes, change the world. Okay. Not only study the world, but to change the world. So that was my BA. Shall I go into talking about Peace Corps now? Or, or? Sure. Okay, sure. because it sort of fits in. I did not go directly from uh, undergraduate to getting my PhD because okay. I wanted to get out in the world and uh, it was a time of activism. I mean, there Absolutely. were demonstrations yeah. all over. You probably remember that, Pat. I <laughs> definitely do, yes. And uh, <laughs> so what did I do? I joined the Peace Corps. And now, that was in between getting your BA before you Yeah, uh, Between my BA and my MA. Okay. And so for two years, I went, of all places, Afghanistan. Now, I could choose, I remember on the application... <laughs> There were three choices of countries that you could okay. apply to go to. 
I chose India, Nepal, and lastly, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I remember I even spelled it wrong. (laughs) I left out the H, and I had my whiteout putting the H in. I thought they'd never ask me. So I got a call. Now, remember, this was in 69, long before Afghanistan went through all of these terrible wars of recent decades. So um, long story short... Uh, I went to Afghanistan for two years. I taught English in a boys' boarding school in northern Afghanistan, and I felt that perhaps there was something more that not only education but also health was so important. I mean, it was the first experience I had in, a, as they called it, that third world country. Uh-huh. English was important, but I really thought that peace Peace Corps should also be involved in something like health. So by that time, I knew Farsi, the local language, Dari. And so I became a translator in a healthcare program um, in the mountains. Now, we're going to get back to gender later in our discussion here. But any, any project that I was involved with, you could look at it from a gender perspective. Okay. And in Afghanistan, at those times, it was a very, very poor country. Okay, how about today? It's a very, very poor poor country. country. Nothing's Mm -hmm. changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in any case, um, I was there for two years. It was a fantastic experience. We could get back to that later if you want. No, let's talk about it now. Then I wanted to um, go. I can finish my education here. (laughs) So then I came back. I got my master's. And uh, uh, then that was in 1975, ages ago. <laughs> and then um, I went back and uh, worked with the demographic survey in Afghanistan for two years. Then I came back, went on with my PhD at Madison in Wisconsin, and got that in 1980. Now, mostly I've been concerned with, as far as topics go, um, family structure or okay. relations between family members. We mm-hmm. can see that leads right directly into gender, right? Sure. Absolutely. And in a place like Afghanistan, there were always conservative aspects of the society and liberal aspects of the society. Okay. And that exists today, too. So um, that is my education. Okay. How yeah. did your parents feel about you going to Afghanistan? Afghanistan. Oh, wow. They <laughs> yeah. were great. Oh, That's good. wonderful. They That's were good. great. And I think if we go back to why I was interested in international development, um, you know, from the very beginning, and you people all know yourself, um, as parents, you can really direct the way you want your child to grow up to mm-hmm. a certain point, <laughs> at least to age nine or something. Sure. But in any case, it was always the stress on children of the world or, you know, trying to help the children of the world. Or, you know, there mm-hmm. are people who are poor, much poorer than you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had pen pals. You know, there were I had like six or seven pen pals. So I was always writing. We used to write letters then. Yes, I did but, that, too. <laughs> yeah. and All the foreign stamps and everything. Yeah, that was fun. But as far as my parents were, were um, I think they realized they, they 
raised me to be internationally oriented. So when I said I wanted to go overseas, my mom had a little trouble with the Peace Corps, <laughs> you yeah. know, this, and then a little trouble with Afghanistan. But still, at that time, Afghanistan was just a forgotten country. Recently, we have had decades of dealing with that country on CNN, in the newspapers, mm -hmm. good and bad. Mm -hmm. But at that time, it was a beautiful mountainous country that nobody knew very much about. So she didn't have the kinds of fears that our parents would have. No, right there now was about. never, there was never uh, a feeling of why are you doing this? Sure. And mm -hmm. I kept on saying, you know, for my career, this is perfect. That's great. And indeed it was. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. It's wonderful that your parents supported you <laughs> so much in that. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us some more about the Peace Corps, what okay. that experience was like. Okay. Well, I think this is a, um, something that happened more than 50 years ago, but is still very much a part of my later career. And uh, even personally, I mean, uh, some of the people that I knew at that time, I just talked to this morning. They're wow. now oh, wow. the <laughs> Afghans who I knew then. They are now in Toronto. And I just talk to them and we go back and forth and you That's know, awesome. we've stayed together. But as far as Peace Corps goes, it was a very um intense situation. But I have to say, touch wood, I was very lucky. At that time, I mean, compared to the way we look at Afghanistan now, at that time if we're talking about my personal experience, I could wear skirts to school to teach in a boys' boarding school. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. that is just one sign of in the late 60s. It was a very different scene than it has been after the wars started. And uh, I met some wonderful people. Uh, we had a small group of volunteers, stayed very close, um, it was, of course, a lot of culture shock because sure. going to a country like that, um, you had to adjust very quickly. And I had to learn the language very quickly. And I was in a class with 70 little boys sitting <laughs> on the ground with a, you know, a, like a two foot by two foot little uh, uh, blackboard <laughs> <laughs> and how to control the class. Mm -hmm. So I had out of fear, I learned the language, no. <laughs> and also, also because I really needed it. But right. that has served me well, and that's why I think that I have been able to work in so many contexts. I have not only, I didn't only spend my whole life in Afghanistan. I mean, mm -hmm. I later branched out because right. politically it was impossible to focus there. And uh, I've worked in other countries too. But of course, here we're talking about Afghanistan today. Right. Okay. Can you speak some of the language for us? Okay. <laughs> Tell us something. Okay. I'll say Bisyar Khushidam Kevin Jamadam Imros Dafia Wallast came up podcast makeadam Khodakana e Kamyab Mesham Bisyar Khushidam. I'm very happy to be here today. That was amazing. Thank you. I didn't realize you could speak that. That was Farsi. Well, they call it Farsi. It's Persian, and they also call it Dari. Mm -hmm. So it's all Dari. those different, different. Uh, but it, it, degree, you had to have a language as an anthropologist. Sure. I mean, the key in being an anthropologist is to understand the local people. 
And if you don't have that language, of course you can use translators. But I mean, you know, best thing is to be able to speak it. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely, yeah. So you got your PhD. What was your what was your your focus? You talked about structures and family. So yeah, okay. So what did you well, do with that? Um, I used the periods during which I was working as subjects for my degrees. Okay. For example, I worked um, I worked in Afghanistan um, on a program, uh, a demographic program. And so when I was later dealing with writing up my master's, which was on family structure and fertility, I used the data that we had gathered. Now, I never worked by myself throughout my whole career. Sure. This is a team approach. And as an anthropologist, I bring either the ability to understand what the local people feel, or I bring a larger socio-cultural perspective. But say, for example, if it's a health program, I'm dealing with nurses and doctors and health professionals. If it's an education program, I'm dealing with teachers and and you know people who are educators. Sure. But um, for my work um, in this demographic survey that I conducted, we conducted in <laughs> Afghanistan, it was uh, government sponsored. It was before the war started, and we gathered uh, you know twenty one thousand interviews. I did not. I was training the interviewers, but. What I ended up with was a lot of quantitative data that I could use for my um, PhD and also master's. And then I also had the qualitative data. You know, you have quantitative and qualitative. Mm-hmm. Anthropologists are usually interested in the qualitative. Mm-hmm. That's my cup of tea. <laughs> but it was so good because I also had the quantitative from this demographic survey. Sure. And it was a national survey, the first census of Afghanistan. Wow. Oh, wow. And, um, uh, you know, we had a, a large team. It was a uh, sponsored by the State University of New York, SUNY hmm. Buffalo, okay. but it was with the Afghan government. Okay, Maybe we want to talk about that later, you know, like relations between organizations or universities and governments. That's a sure. crucial part of the development process. Sure. So anyway, uh, for example, the title of my PhD is Sociocultural context of perinatality, the <laughs> period surrounding birth. Right. Okay. So we were dealing with healthcare programs. Okay. But we found that many of the women never went to a modern health practitioner. Mm-hmm. They went to traditional. Right. So we did studies of traditional health practitioners, and so it was it was an interesting way that I could combine uh, traditional with modern. Okay. And uh, I was interested in patient-practitioner relations in the modern context and then in the traditional. And so were you talking directly with the the, the women? Or, yes. Or, so you and, talked with them and the yeah, practitioners as yeah, well. Right. And uh, the practitioners. Uh, for example, we had uh, probably about 20 um, traditional birth attendants in our s- small sample. Okay. And so I would go with Afghans. I never worked by myself, but we would go and visit the traditional birth attendants in their homes and then try to develop rapport. And then if they were not 
very scared <laughs> that it took right. a long time to, you know, convince develop them, relationships, develop relationships. Yeah, um, you know, then we just had extensive discussions with them <laughs> about their ideas of health and illness. And uh, well, then we got in interesting. I might as well go on a bit here. <laughs> um, into a study of traditional methods of fertility regulation. Oh. And uh, I had a large number of people who were interviewing, Afghan women were interviewers mm -hmm. who I had trained. So I sort of dovetailed this with our larger demographic study. And uh, we don't have to go into great detail here, but <laughs> I did collect, we did collect uh, 400 plus methods of fertility regulation. Wow. But now, <laughs> and it, it's interesting because so many times we perceive Afghanistan as this hole in the wall country that's backward. Yeah. And yeah. look at the data you've given us, you know, you've shared and it's. Yeah. Thank you, Pat. I yeah. think that's correct. I yeah. mean, Afghanistan has had a really bad rap mm -hmm. and certainly it does in some ways justifiably. Mm -hmm. But the poor country has been and I'm talking about, you know, 40 years ago now, um, torn from pillar to post yeah. for all kinds of reasons. But like you say, there's a whole context of a culture there, yes. many cultures. Yes. Um, one of them being the traditional medical system, which is actually Greco-Roman. Do we want to go on with this? <laughs> well, I mean, it gives, I, you it, know, it, yeah. I think it's just the idea of the layers of the culture yes. that you've been yeah. able to experience and share with us yes. as opposed to what we see in the news right. and on the news in yeah. the newspapers. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Very yeah. good. So, Very yeah. good. Okay. You don't need to go into any more detail, but okay. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's wonderful. So, I mean, there, there's so much that you, you gathered from that for your, for your PhD. Oh, Please yes. And, and it, it, it was always working with Afghans and writing up all of this data, these data, so that, you know, it was not me gleaning the data to write my PhD. It was, the PhD came years after, sure. you know, it was sure. working with the local people. Yeah. So then once you've earned this degree, <laughs> um, how did you, how did you then go into working with these other organizations. You okay. talked about the relationship between universities and these organizations. Right. Tell us about some of those well, experiences. you know, there's always that thing called networking. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is what um, happened. I mean, mm -hmm. when I was Peace Corps volunteer, I was looking at these other professionals who were, you know, working with the UN or working with USAID or whatever. And, uh, and, um, and uh, you know, you... you got to know people, mm -hmm. and they got to know you. Mm -hmm. And so then, as I went on, um, you know, I was working for two years there before I came back for my master's. I got to know other people mm -hmm. that I came back for my PhD, and that, you know, it was back and forth. And so I was developing these networks all along. Sure. Now, one reason I did get my PhD was that, you know, in... Uh, in many organizations, um, a degree helps a lot. Okay. And again, we have to go back to decades ago. It's not today, because I think women have come a long way professionally. Mm -hmm. But there was a time there when, as a woman, if I wanted to have a job in, say, 
the UN, mm-hmm. a PhD helped a lot. Okay. And that was not the only reason I got it. Sure. But it was part of it. Sure. And uh, so that did help a lot. And then my language ability and then knowing people who were working there. I mean, Kabul is not that big of a town, you know, and so you got to know individuals in various organizations and uh, uh, just when one thing led to another. So tell us about some of the people that impacted you. When you when you were in Afghanistan, some of the people that you talk about that that are there that are in Toronto now, talk to us about some of those relationships. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, certainly, people who impacted me are um, Afghans and foreigners. Yeah. You know, it's a combination. And uh, I, you know, I have to say that uh, probably the and again we go back to Peace Corps. Sure. Um, we don't need to focus on that all the time, though I want to get beyond that. But um, one thing about Afghans is that they are, and I'm generalizing, but very hospitable mm-hmm. from the very beginning. I mean, they make you feel so welcome. And this goes to even today. Mm-hmm. If we were even in Kabul today, um, which we are not, but, <laughs> you know, we would be asked um, you know, how are you feeling or whatever. At that time, you know, it was, please come to my house, have a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you feeling? What are you doing? So long story short, I ended up living with an Afghan family uh, during my Peace Corps time. Uh-huh. And I have to say that some of those people are, you know, my dear friends, and <laughs> they still are. Yeah. Some of the people I worked with, my counterparts in UNICEF, for example, our dear friends, and, uh, uh, you know, I still am in touch. But, of course, communication has changed. We can WhatsApp somebody, just yeah. <laughs> easy as pie, yeah. talk with them immediately. Uh-huh. Right. Going back to my first days in Afghanistan, I remember it was from um, September when we got into Afghanistan until December before I um, called America. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so what what yeah, year was that? That was uh, 70. 1970. Mm-hmm. 1970. And I had to wait to get to Kabul and go to the post office to get to a phone. Yeah. But, you know, so, yeah. I mean, look at the difference in yeah. communication. Sure. I have to say a number of people, uh, foreigners also impressed me working yeah. with these various teams because I always was working with a team. You know, people who who were trying so hard and were so dedicated. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever the project may be, because there are many, many projects in which I worked. Sure. Um, also, I have to say, among the Afghans, so many people dedicated, and if we're Sanchins, so many women who were so <laughs> dedicated and mm-hmm. are still dedicated, trying to find their way. And many of them um, desperate yeah. because of, of food shortages today. Um when I was working, well, there have always been food shortages in Afghanistan. But, um, you know, many women and men working very hard to just put food not on the table because they don't eat on tables. But, you know, put, bring put food, food in front of yeah. their families. Yeah. <laughs> put food in front of their family. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, that dedication really impressed me. Uh-huh. And how difficult. I mean, 
how difficult. If you, if can I just go on with something here that I think will clarify yeah, Afghanistan? Sure. You know, here you are as an Afghan trying to fit in, trying to find a job, trying to keep your family going. You know, thinking about education, all of these things, thinking about who the government is, mm-hmm. and it has been a very schizoid history. So try to think if you're raising a family in this series of events. Um, in 1978, that was after I was Peace Corps, but I was okay. there at the time. <laughs> there was a coup, okay, a communist coup. And so from 1978 to 1989, the country was communist and the Soviets were also there. So that was a decade of what did you learn? You learned Russian. Oh. Mm-hmm. Or you became a refugee, which millions did. Hmm. Or you died, which millions did. But that was a decade of Soviet-oriented life. Okay. Then there was a civil war for a couple of years, and then the Taliban came to power. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, from 1995 to 2001, the Taliban were in power which were the, it was the antithesis of communism. If women's education was stressed during the communist regime, it was Polar a opposite. no-no yep. then. If you were not supposed to have a beard when the communists were there, you were supposed to grow a beard when the Taliban were there. So there we've gone through one huge change. Then all of a sudden, the Taliban, 2001, um, all kinds of things happen, including 9-11. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, after the Taliban, they're out. And for the next 20 years, it has been Western-oriented. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it has been a long period, two decades of not communism, very international, but not Taliban. And so there again, you have education for women and girls, for boys, uh, for men, you know, go wherever you want. If you can get a visa, study, you know, so many programs were there uh, from every country, mm. European Union, you know, you name it. And then all of a sudden, after 20 years of that approach, then in 2021, what happens? The Taliban come in again. Yeah. And so it's been going from one extreme to another. And it's one thing to study it. It's another thing as a foreigner to go there mm-hmm. and try to understand it. But if you're trying to raise your family there, it is really hell. Let me ask you about that. And, and with those quantum shifts, because they are quantum shifts, when the West had their period of time, women could be in the professions. Uh, there was a lot more freedom, no you know, dress code or anything like that. How... How do you see this, if you see it at all? How does this play out now that the Taliban is back? Well, I think it's been devastating for not only women, but also men, too, in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, because of the the approach that they take towards government. Um, uh, well, it, it just has really changed so many people's lives. Mm-hmm. And again, you have this outflux of refugees. You know, mm-hmm. if you can take it, you try to stay. But so many people right now just are, you know, they've thrown in the rag and they've said, we're either going to Pakistan, 
we're going to Iran, we're going to by hook or by crook, we're going to become, you know, a refugee trying to get to Greece in a boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so so many people, if indeed they had the means, have left. If you're staying, it's very uh, difficult. I it's just... extremely difficult. And uh, you know, there is there is a, a lack of well, here again going back to what I said before, you know, that so many dedicated women and men too are working for a salary to try to provide food for their families. Well, right now, women cannot go to high school. Girls right. cannot go to high school. They can't go to the university. Even though the Taliban promised that they weren't going to take that away. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and well, they did. we know how that goes. Yeah. And, um, you know, many women cannot work. And mm-hmm. so jobs that they had before are impossible these yeah. days. So yesterday I heard on NPR that the um, Taliban was had put an edict that they were closing hair salons. Yes. Yes. Because um, they didn't, because it was not considered a Muslim, um, and many of the hair salons are run by women, and they're for brides. And yes. um, they interviewed one woman who who was saying they have nothing now, and her husband is a wedding videographer, and they don't allow um, yes. video uh, video of weddings anymore, yeah. so he can't work. So now they have nothing. Exactly, and I mean. 20 years was a long period of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, 2001 to 2021, you know, that was a long period of time, almost a generation in right. which people became accustomed to um, participating. Mm-hmm. And now they cannot participate in many ways. And so it really is devastating. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like they got a taste of it, but yeah, not physically. Fully. And mentally. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, there has been such an exodus of, of Afghans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that kind of brings us almost to um, what we do for our, cl- what mm-hmm. Pam has helped us do for our club to help. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, one of the things that, that we do is we support um, the Jibreel Learning Center um, in, is it Harrit? Harat. Harat. Um, yes. And we feel very strongly, um, you know, we connect with that because somehow it's personal for us now that we've been been donating for so long. And yes, um, we, you know, we hear all these positive things that you're that you're able to, um, you know, bring back for us from um, from Sakina, um, Sakina. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, can you tell us a little bit about maybe how that works and how the school works? Sure. And, okay. and what? Before things, you know, were perhaps shut down, as we think they may have been, how things were were working there. Right. Well, um, this is an NGO, non-government organization, a local NGO run by Afghans and run by one very dynamic woman um, whom I have known for quite a while. In fact, when refugees in uh, in the 80s were going to Pakistan. She was at that time working in the refugee camps, and I was working there too. So step by step, she has created this organization, Sakina Yakubi, um, called um, Afghan Institute of Learning, AIL. 
Now, since 2011, our club has been supporting, um, supporting their activities. And Many others have as well. Our our portion is oh, very yeah, yeah, very yeah. minimal. Exactly. In fact, <laughs> but in, we're very proud of that yes, portion. Yes. I mean, in yes. fact, years ago, um, Zanta chose um, AIL as a recipient of funding. You know, long Zanta before. International. Yeah, Zanta International. And so, you know, in any case, since 2011, our club has been supporting them, and the focus has been. On women and girls. I mm -hmm. mean, this has been the basic focus um, in education, in health. Uh, regardless of the period of time, there have always been women who were secluded at home. Sure. There always were women who could not, girls and women, who could not participate in public education. So AIL, Afghan Institute of Learning, uh, really focused on trying to reach out to these women and girls who couldn't go to their public school. So they had all kinds of classes that were held informally, uh, in the open. I mean, at that time, compared to right now, it was not illegal to go to a school as a woman or a girl. Mm -hmm. So in any case, um, there were many clinics, etc. They were working in, in many provinces, in 19 provinces, throughout the country. And, uh, you know, they were really accomplishing quite a bit. Mm -hmm. They also had conferences on women's leadership. You know, they had all kinds of stress on entrepreneurship, whether it be tailoring or hairdressing, mm -hmm. Lisa, as you mentioned, yeah. which is now out the window. Yeah. So, you know, there were all wow. kinds of ways that they were trying to increase in a culturally sensitive way the status of women and girls. Mm -hmm. Not ignoring men and boys, but right. still focusing mm -hmm. on women mm -hmm. and girls. But I think it was part. It wasn't part of that. Also, because of all of the fighting and the ongoing conflicts there, women had to earn money because the men were killed or w severely wounded or whatever in. Yes, weren't able to. That's true. So that's very true. The women had to pick it up. Yes, yes, that's very true. Uh, going back to the times of uh, Soviet occupation, things like this. I mean, there were millions who were killed, and then of course there was the there were the mujahideen who were the the fighters against the invaders, whom we know very well. Mm -hmm. it depends on who the in quotes invader is, but in any case. <laughs> You know, there were many Mujahideen who were also killed mm -hmm. and many Soviet soldiers and, and Afghan soldiers. And as we know, American soldiers <laughs> killed in war as no. time went on. So in any case, yes, many of the women did have to work. Yeah. So, Pam, did you consider yourself or, or do you a pioneer going into Afghanistan? I mean... There's a lot that you saw. There's a lot that you've done. Um, I, I just want to know from an emotional standpoint, how do you feel about this calling that you've had to go there? Well, I don't think I'm a pioneer mm -hmm. in any case. Okay. I think it was so interesting mm -hmm. and so fascinating. And, you know, it, it, what I know about Afghanistan, of course, it's a lot. But, I mean, there's so much more that I do not know or do not understand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, uh, 
I can't say I feel like a pioneer. I feel that we were very um, lucky to be able to go there during times of conflict. And that's because I was a foreigner. I mean, even when the Soviets were there years ago, or when the Civil War was going on in later years, you know, somehow working for the UN or working for NGOs internationally, you know, it gave us the ability to work in communist-occupied villages and parts of urban centers, and then also the Mujahideen villages or urban centers. So, you know, it, it was a, a lot of freedom, but I was just lucky. I hit it at the right time, but no, not a pioneer, because many people came before me and many people are there and now trying in their own way to do things. So, no. I don't feel that pioneer, but thank you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but do you well, feel like you, you had an impact? Yes, that's what we well, we're hearing here. Well, that's another thing. That's another thing. Impact. That's really tricky to yeah. answer that. How so? Uh, because you know, even when you look at, uh, even when you look at percentages of, uh, say, female literacy, mm -hmm. can I say I did anything? I could say I had a little part to it, but. You know, did I have an impact? Yes, I probably did. Did people see me? I mean, even those boys that I was teaching as a Peace Corps volunteer, mm -hmm. probably the first woman other than their family members they ever spoke sure. with. Sure. Did that influence them? I'm sure it did. Yes. How many of them are yes. alive today? <laughs> That's another story. Yeah. You know, I mean, because that was right before all the wars started. Yeah. But I would like to say I had an impact. But when even you look at a health program, mm -hmm. we all questioned as we were working, what is this impact, mm -hmm. actually? And at that time, sometimes you even think that the only impact you have is if you bandage somebody's wound. That mm -hmm. is an impact. But if you start thinking about, okay, what's the impact of this huge healthcare program or education program? Or, mm -hmm. you know, you get up, you work, you work with your team. Mm -hmm. Um. If we had had a fantastic impact, Afghanistan would not be where it is today. Mm, sure. You know, something has not been impactful. Something has not worked. I mean, we could go on with, with problems of development. I mean, we have uh, all kinds of money spent, billions, billions sure. of dollars spent there in the past decades. But, you know, talk about impact, you know, I mean, we wouldn't be in the situation we are today if things had worked out the way we wanted them to. Mm -hmm. But probably on an interpersonal level, that's something else. Yes. Mm -hmm. awesome. That has meaning, though, for sure. Oh, yes, for yeah. sure. sure. And I mean, sure. I had, a, I, I, looking back, I mean, I just, I had such a fantastic time. <laughs> I mean, it was just a very enjoyable time. I never felt fear, fearful. Mm -hmm. I never felt like, oh, this is the end of my life. You know, I mean, I went through two coups, but I mean, you know, there always <laughs> was was some way out. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I guess having said that, um, you know, I just really appreciated the time spent there. So, Pam, what, what would you want us to take oh, away from? Yeah, I should finish up with <laughs> Jabril. Yeah, sure. I have not. I've gone 
Do I have time? Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> that was Jabril, and we hope will be Jabril. Yeah. The only thing is, right now, it's rather tricky, because as all of these events have happened, the Taliban have taken over, they have switched into a humanitarian stance, because okay. they cannot practice publicly in Afghanistan like they did. And... Uh, we have to sort of wait things out, see how things are going. They're stressing more um, their TV and radio. They have a TV and radio in which they can reach a population that can't get out of their house. But right now they are illegal in Taliban terms. Oh, I mean, as far as working with women and girls go, you know. So many things have gone underground. And, uh, you know, they, they are focusing more on health, providing food. Um, they have a staff of both men and women. But, you know, as far as being able to work with an NGO or, you know, coordinate with UN or coordinate with other offices, that's really tricky these days. Mm -hmm. So we have to say that... The, the whole change in government there has impacted them terribly, along with millions of other Afghans. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a somber note. <laughs> yes, for, it is. For, it is. But, you know, it's like I said before, so many of these people are, are highly dedicated mm -hmm. and dedicated in a way that, um, you know, you really don't see in the States because we don't have to be quite so dedicated. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> but they're, uh, you know, they're certainly, um, they've lived through many times of, of trouble before. And, uh, you know, we have to say that the, the whole thing is not finished. Um, we have international politics coming in. We have all kinds of questions about uh, should the Taliban be recognized? Mm -hmm. Should they not be recognized? So, you know, it's really complicated. But, I mean, I certainly am not, I have not lost all hope. And I think that a lot of people have not either, except if you've got a family and they don't have enough to eat, then maybe you start losing sure. hope. Sure. So, but, you've, but you've already seen how things have ping-ponged. That doesn't mean it's not going to ping-pong back in yeah, the other well, direction. Exactly. Exactly. Sometime in the near of future. Of course, the question is, you know, what happened well, to all those uh, educated people, mm -hmm. professionals, Right. Nurses, doctors, right. right, teachers. You know, most many of them have left, and that's. It seems like there's a huge. We've talked about this when we did our podcast with the program in Uganda because yes. it's like there's a brain drain. Yes, brain drain, mm -hmm. exactly. And that's been going on for years and years. But you know, there are a number of Afghans who would probably go back if the setting was right. Sure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, are highly dedicated and patriotic to their country. So, you know, we just have to sort of hold on. But organizations like AIL have changed dramatically. I mean, look at Zonta. What would we do if we couldn't meet at Al's or if all <laughs> of a sudden, you know, yeah. we couldn't uh, socialize and talk and mm -hmm. demonstrate and, you know, things like that. I mean, we would be up a crick. 
And uh, we but don't. But we're Zanchins, so we'd find a way. Find a, way. <laughs> <laughs> a new location. Or exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I, let's hope for a better future. Yes, definitely. But it is such a gorgeous place. And yeah. It is a oh, beautiful is country. Uh, it's very poor, but, um, you know, I think we, we, as you said, Pat, earlier, you know, there uh, we, we have one impression of the place that has. Mm-hmm been uh, developed in our minds uh, by news broadcasts, and Mm -hmm. it's sort of negative, and it's like uh, bare mountains and, you know, people Mm -hmm. shooting each other, things like that. Well, it's also verdant green valleys and beautiful snow-covered mountains and and very hospitable people. So, you know, the game is not over. Right. That's what we want to focus on, (laughs) is all the the beauty that Afghanistan has. So, Pam, I know we barely touched the surface of your of your career. Is there anything you want to share with us about your experiences working in the different countries that you worked in? Well, uh, along with Afghanistan, I mean, I worked with the U.N. later and also, um, excuse me, the World Bank. I worked with the World Bank later. And at that time, um, Afghanistan uh, was... um, in a difficult situation, I sort of branched out. I worked a lot in Pakistan because I had worked with refugees there, and then also India, and I did a lot of work in poverty alleviation in Tajikistan and Mongolia, and um, also Sri Lanka, did I say? No, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, South Asia has been my focus, Central Asia. Okay. Um, Afghanistan is sort of where South Asia and Central Asia meet. And so I worked in those other countries, mm-hmm. too, on uh, health, education, child labor, gender, things like that. So, you know, it just is a gorgeous world. I, um, Since great. retiring, I have not uh, uh, gone back there a lot in recent years, mm-hmm. but um, it's a great time. <laughs> so where would you say is your favorite place internationally to be? Oh, that would by far be Afghanistan. That's great. (laughs) I think it's sort of like your first love. You know, it's like when you, you know, you just can't forget about that. And it was a time of growing up and uh, realizing, you know, how I could build a career and what I really like doing Mm -hmm. and uh, a fascinating culture. That Uh, is great. And so that that is certainly um, my most favorite place. That's awesome. Well, Pam, thank you so much for sharing with us your fascinating career. Um, and our club really appreciates your incredible knowledge and passion that you share with us Um Every every month, you you update us on on things that are happening in in the world internationally because you're chair of a, of the international committee, mm-hmm. um, and we we learn so much and we really appreciate that. Um, and thank you for listening to the Zanta on the Move podcast. And we look forward to bringing you more stories of connection and solutions for building a better world for women and girls. Okay. Thank you, ladies. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Thank you, Pam. <laughs> yeah. Zanta on the Move is hosted and produced by Bonnie Winfrey, Pat Perrier, and Lisa Pappas. It is engineered and edited by Alex Melkars. 
Zonta on the Move is recorded in the WCSF studio on the campus of the University of St. Francis in Joliet, Illinois. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of St. Francis, WCSF, University Administration, or the Catholic Diocese of Joliet.